0: Brilliant. Thanks to the band so much. It's great. Um, it, that We've got the Bishop of Guildford coming to speak to us this morning. Um, Andrew Watson uh, has been uh, the Bishop of this diocese for, I think, one week less than a year. Is that right? Uh, next Sunday is the, is the anniversary. Um, uh, Bishop Andrew is married to Beverly, has four children, is an amazing pianist. Um, was previously the Bishop of Aston, was very helpful to our friend uh, Tim Hughes in establishing uh, Gas Street Church up there. Uh, he's been incredibly kind to us um, uh, as, as a community, uh, not least with the logistics around Bill Kuzak moving here and also uh, helping open up St. Mary's where we meet uh, on a Sunday evening. And... Um, I, you know, we're going through this series looking at the, the Nicene Creed. Credo. It's been absolutely brilliant, and uh, I think it's really important that we think about why we believe, what we believe, and that we grow in confidence in that and the things that we can all hold in common. And so uh, today we are uh, looking at one holy apostolic Catholic, uh, Catholic and apostolic Church, and. I mean, there couldn't be anyone better to speak on the subject than the Bishop of Guildford. So let's uh, welcome here, shall we, <laughs> Bishop Andrew? thanks. Thanks very much,
1: Pete. Pete and I didn't uh, have a discussion about what colour shirt we were going to wear today, so it's pretty impressive. We're both wearing a very similar pink shirt. Uh, I thought I'd put a tie on, but uh, anyway. No, it's great, really... <laughs> really lovely to be here Shall we uh shall we pray father for all your goodness to us for uh, for calling us to to know you as our heavenly father for drawing us out of darkness into your marvelous light for the gift of your spirit for the gift of your word in the scriptures for the gift of your church our christian brothers and sisters all around the world stretched out Uh, geographically and stretched out over the past 2,000 years and into all the future. We give you our thanks and praise. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to all that you say to us this day. For Jesus' sake, amen. So I'm going to read from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, from verses 11 to 22, 11 to the end of the chapter. If you're following it uh, on an iPhone or whatever else, then that's fine. And uh, I'm reading it actually from the revised New International, no, the other one, the NRSV, so you may have a different translation there. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is his hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. And so to a question of those of us in our 30s or older, where were you on the evening of Thursday, November the 9th, 1989? If you're in your 30s or older, with a little bit of a hint, you may remember where you were. Here is that little bit of a hint. It was on the evening of Thursday, November the 9th, 1989, that our TV screens were dominated with pictures of young men and women sitting on top of a heavily graffitied wall, singing, embracing, waving flags, drinking lager, and chipping away at the the wall itself with knives and hammers, with screwdrivers and chisels, and sometimes scrabbling away at it with their own bare hands. It would take more than two years and some very heavy machinery to get that Berlin Wall completely destroyed. But I remember watching those scenes on November the 9th uh, with a real sense of excitement, watching them from our house then on a council estate in Redditch. Uh, just a, a few years before, I'd approached that wall myself uh, with some Bibles in my backpack. All young Christians. It was part of being a young Christian in those days. You had to smuggle some Bibles uh, through the Iron Curtain. And uh, we were all inspired by a man called Brother Andrew. So there was I with various friends. We had Bibles in our back. We got through Checkpoint Charlie without the Bibles being discovered and us getting arrested. And it was an incredible experience. We met with Christians in East Berlin and in Dresden and in Leipzig. And uh, just meeting these godly men and women uh, taking a stand for Christ in a very hostile environment was amazing. One of them I remember was a girl called Magdalena, she was about 20 years old. Uh, Magdalena, as a teenager, as a 13-year-old, had been given a stark choice as every 13-year-old was given in East Germany at that time. Uh, She was encouraged to go through something called the Jugendfeier, a communist initiation ceremony. And in order to go through the Jugend fire, you had to pledge your allegiance to the state and you had to say, there is no God. And Magdalena, along with many other Christian teenagers, had uh, decided not to go through with the Jugend fire. The Stasi, the secret police, had come to her house. They would said to her parents, she must go through this Jugend fire because otherwise she can't go to university. She won't get a proper job. And uh, she'd refused to do it. And so now Magdalena was working as a orderly in a hospital where she could have been a surgeon. It was the most amazing thing. And uh, and so seeing that wall come down, the beginnings of that wall coming down on November the 9th, 1989, was just so thrilling to think that the Stasi, the secret police in a society where there were almost more spies than people being spied on, the idea that they were coming to an end, the idea that Germany might be reunited, the East from the West, that this great war might come down was most amazing. And it's become even more relevant to us as parents over the last two or three years because our daughter Hannah has just married a lovely man called Peter, a lovely Christian guy uh, from East Germany, as was. And Peter's own parents were arrested trying to escape from East Germany and were locked up for an, a, a whole year in a prison in East Berlin before being bought out by the West Germans. So it kind of has personal resonance as well. And Jesus, says St. Paul, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall between us. Who are the two that Paul is writing about here? He's writing about the Gentiles and the Jews. God has pulled down the dividing wall uh, between us through the death of Christ, the blood of Christ on the cross. Now, of course, walls, bricks and mortar, are not always a negative thing. I mean, we like living in places with walls because they protect us from the wind and the rain and the snow. And, uh, And they also help define us. We have what we call a home. And our home is those walls in which, in a good household at least, we know that we're secure, we know that we're comfortable, we're warm, hopefully. We love the people that we share with. And generally, we like living in places with walls. I mean, I go camping from time to time with my family. And camping's fine, isn't it? It's all right. But actually, the best bit of camping is when you get back home. (laughs) It's one of the best reasons to go camping, that you suddenly appreciate the fact you've got a bathroom. You know, amazing. And you can wash up without 17 other people queuing up behind you. And all those really, you know, we like our walls. And just occasionally, I've slept out under the stars, very occasionally on a really hot night. And being able to sort of watch and and see, I remember in Israel one time doing that, an amazing kind of celestial firework display. It was fantastic. And yet, we need to get back. We want to get back to our walls. They define us, they defend us, they separate us from those who are welcome, from those who are not. And how about the odd lock, and alarm, and maybe security gate, lock filer thrown in for good measure? Here's the problem, you see, that just the walls that protect us can also imprison us. And the walls that define who are our friends, who are the people that we want to live with, are also walls that exclude other people. Here in the UK, we have one of the biggest natural walls of them all. And that means that just in the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War, we're able to walk by on the other side of the channel. Other parts of Europe are obviously building more and more walls, they're putting up more and more security fences and barricades to try and keep people out. All very understandable in one way, and all very sad in another. And I always find it interesting, as you read the Gospels, how much of the time Jesus spent outside. He did go into the temple from time to time, he went into people's homes from time to time, but he made a point of the fact that he didn't have a home of his own. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He spent his time outside, most of his time. Why did he do that? It left him very unprotected, very vulnerable. But it also made him very accessible. Actually, people didn't have to go through walls to meet with Jesus. The early church, why was it that the church took such a long time before they started building church buildings? Well, it's partly because the Roman Empire never quite knew whether it loved the Christians or hated them. So if you built a church building, it might be torn down the, next, the very next moment. But it's also because Christians in those days knew that living in a place without walls, meeting in the temple courtyards, where, which was basically meeting in the outdoors, meant yes, you are unprotected, you were vulnerable, but also people could join in. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, writes Luke in Acts chapter two. And here in our uh, reading itself, Paul is talking about this most powerful dividing wall, one of the most powerful ones in the ancient world, and that was between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Now, of course, the Gentiles were vastly in the majority. And the Gentiles had also been dominating Israel for the best part of the past 600 years. And there was a big nationalist movement, as you know, in Israel wanting to throw them out, wanting to get rid of the the Romans. And and the Romans, the Gentiles, tended to think that the Jews were rather odd. They couldn't quite understand them. And the, the one thing they found most odd was that the Jews didn't have any statues that they bowed down to worship. They thought that wasn't any kind of religion. If you don't make pictures of your gods, then what kind of gods do you have? And do you know, the Gentiles used to call the Jews atheists. Atheoi was their word for them, atheists. They said, well, they can't have God. They used to call the Christians atheists as well for the same reason. They couldn't understand what was going on. And then the Jews, on the, on the other hand, they looked over the wall at the Gentiles and they said, well, we need to make ourselves distinctive from these people. We, we don't want to be like the Gentiles. So what were the three things that made them most distinctive? They were circumcision, male circumcision, there were the Jewish law. We obey the law, all kinds of rules about the way you washed and the way you lived your life. And there were the temple in Jerusalem. Those were the three big things that defined Israel, the Jews, over against the Gentiles on the other side of the wall. And yes, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was one courtyard where the Gentiles could go if they wanted to worship God. But it was the outer courtyard, and it was full of the noise of, uh, and smell of cattle and, uh, and, and animal sheep being traded and money changing hands. It wasn't really a very worshipful place to meet at all. That was open to the Gentiles. But then there was a wall between that and the next court, the court of the Jews, and on that wall was a sign. And we know exactly what that sign says because they've just dug it up. Shall I read you what that sign said in between the court of the Gentiles and the courts of the Jews? It said this, no foreigner is to pass the parapet and barrier around this precinct. Anyone caught will only have himself to thank for his ensuing death. That's friendly, isn't it? Imagine if that was on that door there. You know, it's not really very friendly at all. And Jesus, you'll remember, had famously taken a whip into the court of the Gentiles. He sort of turned over the tables. He'd got rid of the, chased them all out as far as he could. And as he'd done so, he'd shouted out, My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. One of the barriers in the temple, that curtain which separated off the Holy of Holies as you went further into the temple, was famously torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified, just a symbol of all that Jesus was going to do and had done through his death on the cross, just opening up the way so that as we heard earlier from Hebrews chapter four, we can have full, uh, full confidence in entering into the presence of God. But in the end, Jesus, temp- Jesus' vision was not simply that walls in the temple would be torn down, it was actually that the walls of the temple would be torn down. And Jesus predicted that that would happen, that the temple would be destroyed because this place that should have been offering all the good things that walls offer, security and blessing and encouragement and a sense of family and a sense of home and hospitality and all the rest, were instead doing quite the reverse. They were shutting people out. They were keeping Israel as far as possible from the Gentiles so that they could no longer be a light to lighten the Gentiles because the light was just kept in this small building. Well, quite big building. And 35 years after Jesus died, as you probably know, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. They just bashed it all down. And there's just one wall left. It's still left today. It's called the Wailing Wall. And uh, faithful Jewish people go to the Wailing Wall and they pray and they weep. Just the one wall left. And so here in our reading, Paul was pretty candid to the Gentile readers. He said, do you know, at one time you were on the wrong side of the wall said you used to call them atheists actually you were atheists you are without hope and without god and what's the greek word for without god it is the word atheoi. atheist you were the atheists you might have bowed down to these various statues and so on but they're no gods at all you were you were the atheists so he's pretty blunt with them and uh what are the jews well he said you were on the right side of the wall you were those who are near to god and yet, precisely the things that you were meant to be doing, you didn't do. Because you built these barricades around you. And so when Jesus came, it wasn't as though we just needed to knock a little hole in the wall or take down that sign from one courtyard to the other. The whole thing needed to be bashed down. We needed a, God needed to start again, rather like Noah's Ark. You know, God needed to start again. And he started again by making something new. He demolished the wall, and now he started building something else, something much more exciting. The wall was demolished, if you like, through the heavy machinery of the cross. Just as the Berlin Wall was demolished by the heavy machinery of the uh, Germans on both sides. So Paul, like Jesus, was told, uh, and indeed like the prophet Jeremiah, was, was encouraged to tear down in order to build up again. And so he talked about this demolition of the wall that separates Jew from Gentile, and then Paul immediately starts talking about a temple being built up. Not a temple this time made of bricks and mortar, but a temple made of living people, of you and me. A living temple in which God will live by his spirit. And this is where we come on, at last, to the topic I'm meant to be talking about. I believe in one holy, catholic, An apostolic church because that is what this holy temple is about think about I believe in one 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 is a word that comes a lot in Paul comes a lot in Ephesians I don't know how many times count them one day but it's probably about 30 or 40 in this reading we're told Jesus has made the two one it's in verse 14 In the next verse, he says, God's purpose has been to create in himself one new humanity and in one body to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. Later on in Ephesians, he writes about how there is one body and one spirit, one hope to which you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And the oneness of God's people, our love and unity one for another, is so important that it formed the the basis of Jesus' final prayer. In John chapter 17, before he went to his death, he prayed that we might be one, just as he and his father were one. How many churches are there in Guildford, I wonder? In God's eyes, there's one. How many churches are there in England? One. How many churches are there in the world? There's one. Yes, with different branches. But there's one church, that's the way God looks at it. But they wear funny robes and sing boring hymns and pray prayers out of books. Well, they have worship bands singing soft rock and (laughs) spontaneous praying. And how many churches are there in Guildford? Jesus says, one. How many churches are there in England? One. How many churches are there in the world? There's one. Every branch has its own character and the strengths and weaknesses that go with it. That's why we need each other. But Paul's image of the body of Christ isn't actually an image first and foremost for the local church. It's an image of the whole church, the universal church. So that there's some things that this church is doing in Guildford that other churches are not. Some things that other churches are doing in Guildford that this church is not. And actually all together in it. The body of Christ is worked out through the people of God across this town, the city, and this region. That is the picture here. And that means if we're ever tempted to get competitive as churches, it's just disastrous. We start even indulging in, do you know that German word, schadenfreude? A joy in other people's misfortunes. You know, I picked up schadenfreude in church life where people start quite liking the fact that other churches aren't like our church or that church is on its way out. Disastrous. Jesus shed his blood, pulling down the dividing walls between us. So every time that we try and pull them up again, put them up again, we're only doing the devil's work for him. So one church, holy, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one holy church. In verse 21 of this reading, Paul speaks about how this new building, this building made of human beings, not of bricks and mortar, is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. What is the definition of a holy temple? It's quite simply this, says Paul. It's a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. If the spirit is not in a place, it's not a church. God lives by his spirit in the holy temple. And God's ultimate purpose for us, for all his church, is not first and foremost that we're happy. Sorry about that. It's that we're holy. That's his first purpose. Yeah, happiness comes along the way. But actually holiness is what he longs for us. And sometimes holiness requires what we've just been singing about, fierce love. Fierce love. Happiness doesn't usually involve fierce love. Holiness often does. Listen to this description of fierce love from C.S. Lewis. He puts this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you first thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. One holy Catholic, That's a word that we don't find in our reading, and we might choke over it when we say the creed, if we do. Because we confuse it with Roman Catholic. But in fact, the word Catholic, in Paul's understanding, lies right at the heart of God's great demolition and rebuilding project. When we speak of someone having Catholic tastes, it means that they're not fussy. They'll uh, eat anything. And Jesus wasn't fussy. I don't know whether you noticed that in the Gospels. Jesus really wasn't fussy one bit. It's why the pharisees and others got so fed up with him they said you need to be more fussy more discriminating jesus went off in the open air and he was followed yes by synagogue rulers and ro- royal officials and pharisees and members of the jewish ruling council but he was also followed by tax collectors lepers sinners women with unmentionable diseases parents wanting to bless uh, jesus to bless their little children and parents wanting to, Jesus to favor their rather larger children, and uh, Samaritans, and Roman centurions, and Canaanites, and Greeks, and those, uh, those three men from the east bringing to him uh, those rather unusual gifts. I don't guess you get these in many baby showers in Guildford, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so whatever our doctrine of election, if you know what that means, Jesus was in no sense choosy which makes the worldwide church an extraordinarily diverse Catholic family in which to belong. And what about that final adjective, one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Well, says Paul, this new building needs really strong foundations. Yeah, it's got as its cornerstone, its capstone, Jesus himself, that's brilliant. But it's founded, he says, on the prophets and the apostles. Prophets and the apostles, what did they do? They did quite a lot of things, but they... Among the other things they did, they wrote the Bible. The Old Testament is the testimony of the prophets, if you like, and the New Testament is the testimony of the apostles. So Paul is saying that uh, this whole building needs to be founded on the testimony of the prophets and the apostles in the scriptures. If the building is not founded on that, and it's quite easy for buildings gradually not to be founded on that, then that's not a real church. That's not going to bear any kind of weight and any strength as we look to the future you know there's just one other image i'd like to bring to us which flows out of this we've got the demolition done we built the holy temple but there's this lovely image which is picked up very briefly in paul's uh, letter here where he talks about how this has happened through the blood of christ there's actually something flowing out of this temple And uh, in Ezekiel, we've heard about Ezekiel already a bit this morning, but in Ezekiel we have this amazing uh, vision of a little trickle of water flowing out from the new temple which Ezekiel has just sort of seen in a dream. And this little trickle of water flows out from it and it gradually gets wider and wider and becomes a mighty river, so wide that that he says, "I, I just couldn't cross it, I couldn't swim across it. And in this water, we're told that, that actually by its sides, the trees are growing up, which are bearing fruit every season of the year, every month of the year. And this water makes its way out of Jerusalem and flows into the Dead Sea. Has anyone been to the Dead Sea? I've been to the Dead Sea. And uh, Ezekiel has this amazing vision of the Dead Sea being absolutely surrounded by fishermen, all fishing in it and catching, not just floating tourists, which are the only living thing that you'd catch there nowadays, but actually catching fish of every kind, this amazing life-giving water of God's grace poured out from the temple. And as Christians we say, yeah, uh, it reminds us of John's Gospel where the blood and the water flow out from the pierced side of Jesus. And the blood and the water perhaps remind us of uh, of baptism and of the Holy Communion as well, just speaking to us of what it is to follow Christ. And so I'd like us to imagine just a, a, a stream of water flowing out from, from this place. And I'd like you to imagine two banks of the river. And, and without taking this personally, you are the legalistic bank. Okay, this bank is full of, of law-abiding, good law-abiding people. You are all sort of head boy and head girl at school on this side. You know, you've always done the right thing. You've always worked hard, you've, you know, you've been there, you've been religious. You've, uh, you've done your stuff. And on this side of the river, I'd like you to imagine you are the really lawless ones. Okay, you really messed up at school. You sort of stuffed it all up. And uh, you've been sort of vaguely trying to get your way back. But uh, life's been one great party. It's been brilliant in many ways, but, but it's been quite challenging. And, and down the middle of this, I'd like you to imagine this river of grace flowing out from the altar in the temple, flowing out from the, the body of Christ. And it's almost as though Jesus is standing in the middle of that river and calling people on both banks. He's saying, come on in, it's lovely. And the trouble is there's a bank over there, there's a bridge over this river, and those on the on the legalistic side every now and then think, well, it's time for me to have a midlife crisis. You know, I've been too good all my life. So I'm going to go over the bridge onto the lawless side. And every now and then the people on the lawless side, they think, well, I've just had enough of partying. You know, I need to, a bit of detox. You know, it's lent after all. So, so perhaps I need to go over the bridge the other side and, you know, taste a bit of... Is that the right way round? And you know, and, and, and have a bit more discipline, a bit more sort of rigor in my life. And Jesus says, no, don't go over the bridge. He says, come on in. Come on in from both sides. Come in into the river of grace. Because this is the place. And all the way, if you read the the Gospels, you'll see Jesus calling people like Nicodemus in John chapter three, the legalist, come into the River of Grace. The very next chapter, he's with a dodgy Canaanite woman, a Samaritan woman who's been married six times and is now living with someone who isn't a husband, and says, you come on in. And there's this amazing Catholic assortment of people swimming around in the River of, of Grace. As a child, I used to love that word, light. And I partly loved the word light, because I was fascinated with how it was the opposite of both heavy and dark. And as the sort of light shines on the river of grace, it's as though Jesus is saying, to those who are weighed down by the heaviness of legalism, the heavy yoke, you know, come on in. And those living in the darkness of lawlessness, come on in, you know, come on in, experience the light, come on in and experience uh, my grace, my love, my blessing. And so we have this very diverse group of people and sometimes the ex-lawless in a church rather uh, envy the ex-legalist because they say, you know your Bible so well, you know, from a child you were brought up to read the Bible and we wish we knew our Bibles like that. And sometimes the ex-legalist rather, rather envy the lawless. They say, well, you know, your testimony is so amazing. Whereas my testimony, you know, I used to chew gum in the evening service. You know, it doesn't, doesn't quite cut it, really, when I, when I hear your, your testimony. And kind of envy sets in. But Jesus says, no, don't envy, just come on in. Come on in. And you tend to find when people start sort of backsliding, when they start going back to, they'll go back to where they were. So the, the legalists just go back to being a li- little bit legalistic. And the lawless go back to being a bit lawless. I remember I worked in a youth club in Islington for a couple of years, and we had a guy called Evan who became a Christian wonderfully. And Evan, before he became a Christian, used to rob betting shops. That was his sort of job. And uh, about a year after Evan became a Christian wonderfully, we had a phone call from the police saying he'd just been caught robbing a betting shop. And I thought, Christians don't rob betting shops. It's not the way Christians behave. And then I thought, well, what happens to me when I start backsliding? Well, I just drift back. And my bank was more this bank. So I drift back into sort of judgmentalism and pride and all the kind of things that, that were true of me before I became a Christian that I'm tempted to, even now today. And Jesus says, come on in, it's lovely. You don't have to be burdened by the endless sort of self-justification on the one hand. You don't have to be burdened by endless self-harm on the other. You can come and join in. So whether it's the broken down wall and the building of the temple, whether that captures your imagination, or whether it's the river of grace sort trickling out from the temple and getting bigger and bigger and wider and wider as it goes along, my prayer, I guess, for each one of us is that we might find our place within this extraordinary worldwide family which Jesus calls the church. We, we can't be proud belonging to this family because Jesus isn't choosy. He's not fussy. He's invited us in anyway. But this is a family where all barriers should come down, And where we're splashing in the water together doesn't mean that the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic a lot of the time it's a sinful place made up of sinful people and if we're not sinful people then uh, well bless you come and meet me afterwards if you're not Uh, I'm not sure the church is for you actually if you're not a sinful person but uh, but God says you know I it was never my intention for you to to do this thing alone you know, I want you to be part of my body. I want you to be part of my family. I want you to be part of this holy temple made of living stones. And while this vision of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church will never be perfected until we go to meet with our Lord in glory, how important that we do pray and work for that vision to become more and more and more a reality. Not just for our benefit, not just so that we can boast I belong to a family of two billion believers but for the sake of the world that god loved so much that he sent his only son for its redemption. shall we pay. father for all your goodness to us for this incredible body of christ bride of christ army of god church of god that jesus purchased with his own blood for calling us to be part of this one holy, catholic and apostolic church. We give you our thanks and praise. We ask, Lord, for, for one another. We pray especially for any among us, just uh, who haven't jumped into the river yet. Lord, help us to do that, we pray, whatever our background, wherever we've come from. Pray for any who've been Christians for a while and yet somehow we've, we've lost that sense of your grace. We've been swimming back to the bank from which we came Lord help us to swim in the flow of your love and your grace we pray and we do pray Lord for that river of grace to flow out from this place to bring great blessing to those among whom we live and we work the communities, the streets We long to see many others, Lord, in this town, in this region, coming into a living walk with you. And please help us to do that, not as competitors, but as the one church that you see as you look down on this city. For we ask these things for Jesus' sake.
0: Amen. Let's just continue in prayer. I'd love us to pray for Bishop Andrew and for other churches, part of the one church throughout this area. Lord, we thank you so much that you have brought Bishop Andrew here as a man who knows you and loves you. As we have heard today, knows your word. We pray, Lord, your continued blessing and favor and protection upon him, Beverly, upon their children. We pray that you'd give them strength and wisdom. We pray, Lord God, that you'd give them joy and encouragement. We pray, Lord, that you'd help them to walk in step with your spirit, not to run ahead or hang behind. We pray, Lord, your incredible favor and anointing and power upon them as you advance your kingdom in this diocese. And we, we just long for success. We will cheer and raise our banners with every breakthrough. And Lord, we pray for every expression of your family in this area. Lord, your blessing, we pray, upon every possible type of church The Baptists and Salvation Army, Catholic churches, Anglican churches, house churches, we ask your favor. Thank you Lord, we're one family, we're a bit weird, but you're a wonderful Father and we belong together. Amen.